Welcome and thank you for joining us on the latest instalment of the Day to Day from Ropes and Gray, a podcast series brought to you by the Data, Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice at Ropes. In this podcast, we'll discuss exciting and interesting developments in the world of data. We feature attorneys at Ropes and Gray, as well as clients, regulators and other industry leaders in conversations about what's new in the world of data. I'm Edward Machin, a counsel in Ropes' data, privacy and cybersecurity practice. I'm based in our London office and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Fran Faircloth, a partner in our Washington DC office. Thanks, Edward. On this installment, we have Rowan Massey, a partner in our London office and a head of our data, privacy and cybersecurity practice group, speaking with Sajay Singh partner at J. Sagar Associates in Bangalore. Mr. Singh joined Rowan to talk about the Digital Personal Data Protection Act, India's long-awaited comprehensive data protection law that I, for one, am eager to hear about. Me too, Fran. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Hi and welcome. I am delighted to be joined today by Sajay Singh, a partner in JSA in India. Uh, Sajay is a leading partner on data protection issues in India. And today we are going to talk about the new uh, data protection laws in India. So without further ado, uh, welcome, Sajay. Just introduce yourself and a little bit about you. I have been practicing law now, uh, Rohan, for 33 years. And I have been with this firm, JSA, for 31 years. I was a litigator before that and once i joined jsa i got into what is called non-contentious work or corporate work and i've been with them ever since since 92. my practice has evolved as india's economy has evolved it started with the opening up of the indian economy in 1991 where foreign investment started coming into india and um, India stopped being more like Myanmar and inward looking, it became more outward looking. Uh, so we, the firm was set up to support foreign investment coming into the country. And with that, um, our laws, our policies, everything has evolved because there was a lot of say of the foreign investors that came in. And that process continued until 2000 where I guess Many people, many foreign investors, many foreign governments wanted to know if India has any data protection law, anything to do with the booming IT, ITES economy in India. So we got what may be called an information technology law in 2000 that didn't have anything on data protection. Um, it had things on um, more like e-signatures, digital signatures, concepts of e-governance, a lot of things which were important but didn't really cover this issue. In 11 years later, we had something, a secondary legislation, which covered uh, a part of what may be called data protection. And today, after all these years, in 2023, we now have a data protection law. So all of it, why I gave you this history was that it, a lot of it was determined. A lot of the basis for its evolution and the law today hasn't come from an internal need, but it has come based on the opening up of the economy in 91 and the influence that foreign investors in India and foreign governments interested in India 
have had on a lawmaking process. Ah, fantastic. Thank you. So tell me a little about uh, the law itself, what's come into to play. Yeah. Is it uh, GDPR style law or is it something different? So it uh, uses the same seven principles of data protection or data economy, as we call it. Um, and I'll talk about them in a minute. And therefore, there will be similarities for sure. But there, there are differences as well. This particular law is called the Digital Personal Data Protection Act of 2023. The key words, of course, personal you would have picked up. So it's only personal data, not non-personal data or anything else. The first word digital is very important as well because it is digital data, which you could have collected in uh, online or digital form, or it could be physical data that was uh, digitized. So it's digital personal data protection that is covered here. The seven principles that I mentioned, and again, you'd find similarities with GDPR and the Brazilian law and maybe the UK law and various others, is um, the first concept is the lawful, fair and transparent usage of personal information, which is very important. Purpose limitation. You need to specify the purpose and collect it and use it only for the purpose that you collected the information. Data minimization is the next concept. You only collect data that you need, nothing else. Uh, accuracy is an expectation from the person who collects the data. You call the person a data collector. We call the person a data fiduciary. And they have to keep the data accurate and up to date. Then there is a storage limitation um, so that you don't keep data perpetually. There's a security expectation that you keep the data secure, safe, and use uh, reasonable security practices and procedures. And finally, there's an accountability expectation from the person who's collecting and determining the use of the data. So these are the principles you will find they ring very true. But as we go along in our conversation, I'll highlight some concepts like the duties of a data principle, um, the concept of whitelisting, which exists in uh, GDPR, and the concept of blacklisting uh, for cross-border data transfer that exists in India. So there are these differences. There are some uniquenesses. So we'll come to them as we go along. Uh, thank you. So interesting to hear, uh, I suppose one of the, the um, critical things to think about as well is, is uh, the idea of penalties under the, under the Act. It, does it follow the GDPR and having very high levels of sanction? You know, obviously in Europe we have 4% of annual turnover or 20 million euros. Uh, is it the same sort of punitive regime? Um, it isn't a punitive regime. I, I was I was dealing with some uh, matters uh, with a Spanish client and I just realized that a lot of the data protection authorities penalties in Spain are uh, now tending to be very small or smaller than maybe a Italian or a German uh, uh, you know DPA the and the rationale that uh, uh, the client gave, was that it's very focused on reputational damage rather than, you know, punitive mm -hmm. impact of the uh, fine. I would say India is going to head in that direction 
because as a concept, India doesn't impose very large or huge fines on people. Many people won't be able to pay. And those who will be able to pay, uh, we have certain concepts inbuilt in our uh, contract law. Uh, the two principles being the principle of uh, mitigation and the principle of restitution. Both of those uh, eventually end up forcing the authorities, like the courts or various other authorities, to impose a very nominal fine. But why is that fine, the nominal fine, even relevant? It is hugely relevant because it's not the fine that much. It's the reputational damage. For Indians, like many Asian countries, the loss of face is huge and people try and avoid a loss of face in any situation. So if there is something where your reputation is going to be questioned or challenged or all that you built over these years or over, the period, over a period of time, is going to be lost or tarnished in any way, um, that's going to be more detrimental to the individual than a penalty. That's the overall or the broad comfort that I can give you. The second comfort is that the law itself, the DPDP Act actually imposes guidelines or prescribes guidelines for the Data Protection Board which will be our data protection authority to impose penalties. And these guidelines, pretty much the principles of natural justice, have actually been written down. Otherwise, they would be, you know, concepts that every court would follow in India. And starting with what was the nature, gravity, and the duration of the non-compliance. Then the type and nature of the personal data that was affected. The repetitive nature of the non-compliance, was it a one-off case or does it happen often with that data fiduciary? Did someone, assuming the data fiduciary, uh, gain something because of the non-compliance or somebody put to a loss because of the non-compliance? Um, whether the data fiduciary took steps to mitigate, how effective and timely was, were these steps? Um, is the penalty proportionate and effective to the non-compliance? And finally, which is very important, the likely impact of the imposition of the financial penalty on that person or entity. And this is where the reputation comes in more, as well as the ability to pay. I mean, you may not have the ability to pay. So these have been prescribed. The maximum penalty today is 30 million US dollars, has been prescribed for a non-compliance called failure to prevent a personal data breach. That's the highest. And then there are other situations, uh, non-compliances where penalties have been prescribed, including if a data subject, we call him a data principal, does not follow their duties, they have a penalty, it's about 100 pounds. So the penalties, as you will notice, are much lower in any event from what you may be used to under GDPR. But the, the fact is that even if the penalty has been prescribed to 30 million, I doubt that's going to be imposed on anyone because of the two factors, the broader you know, factor of 
how uh, penalties are looked at in India and the specific guidelines under the DPDP to the board before imposing a penalty. Thank you. So, interestingly, in the DPDP, there is the very clear guidelines on this, and they seem to be uh, very narrow, very detailed. Is that same level of detail carried through with regard to obligations, as you just mentioned, on the individual as much as on the organisation? Do we have that same level of clarity throughout the law, or is it going to be implemented uh, by rules and regulations later? So... The point is very uh, appropriate, I would say, Rohan, that you're making. This is the overarching, the mother law, as you may call it. This gives concepts. The details will come out in the rules and regulations. I would say it's not just the secondary legislation that we are talking about in terms of the details. Um, it will also be guidance that the board issues. Because there will be a period of advocacy where the board is explaining to people a little bit more about the law, um, giving clarity on implementation, compliances. So all of that will come, I would say a lot of it will come from the board. The detail, level of detail that you are talking about that I mentioned here vis-a-vis -vis the board is, I think, what was essential to put here because Setting up of the board has been gone into a lot of detail. And therefore, once it's set up, which it should be soon, uh, how would it impose penalties? Because, you know, breaches are happening, things are happening, non-compliance obviously will happen. Um, and then what does the board do? So I think that was important for the government to put in the DPDP Act. But everything else... Uh, I would say, including what the form of a notice should be to seek consent, because it's very much a consent-based mm -hmm. law. What the form of the consent should be, what the data breach notification should look like, because notification is required to go to the board and every affected data principle. Um, so all of that will come out in the secondary legislation, in the subsequent legislation, and the guidance that the board will issue. And many places in the DPDP Act, it is clearly specified that the government has the right or the board has the right to further legislate or give clarity on the point. So if we've got uh, a waiting period now for guidance on these issues from either the board or the government, um, we've also got a binding law in place. It came into place in, in August of this year. What should companies be doing now whilst they wait for that guidance to come in. You know, how do they find them not to be caught between a rock and a hard place? How should they be going forward at the moment? So as of now, while this particular law has replaced the previous uh, law that existed um, on data protection, um, but at a practical level, till we have guidance, giving you a small example of the reasonable care that is expected uh, that the data fiduciary should put in place to take care of the personal data, what reasonable security practices and procedures, what management policies should it impose or follow? We still go back to the previous law. And the previous law had ISO 27001 guidelines, and those are what we are asking clients to continue to follow till we have other guidelines or till we have more clarity. So. Right now is this 
period, though it's not being called a transition period, you can't stop following what you were following in the previous law. I think the major change has been that the previous law was focused at two-tier level of compliance, one for personal data and one for a subset of personal data called sensitive personal data. That has gone away. Now it's just personal data. So in the previous law, you needed consent only for sensitive personal data, and you could theoretically process personal data you know, without consent. I mean, there were exceptions. But that's gone away. So now for every piece of personal data, you have to follow through with purpose uh, specified notice and then consent. Um, so during this period, and uh, I would say clients may have to wait uh, for broadly 80% clarity till for about a year, and then 100% clarity, I'm not sure if 100% clarity will ever be there, but a broader level of clarity, I think you are looking at a 24-month period. So things will start getting clear every month, every few months. I would say one thing that's completely gone away where personal data is concerned in India is the concept of opt-out. So if there are clients who have an opt-out concept vis-a-vis -vis personal data, they need to get rid of it. It is now purely opt-in. So that's fundamental. Um, there are uh, several rights that a data principal has. One, and many of them are rights like access to data, having information about the data, having a grievance redressal process or you know, seeking grievance redressal vis-a-vis -vis their personal data, seeking erasure of their personal data, all of these are concepts that require a communication line being established between the data principal and the data fiduciary. That is something that clients can already start looking at and you know, establishing if not there. Um, the grievance redressal process should be put in place. Uh, you know, that's pretty clear that they will need to have if someone comes up with a request or someone comes up with a grievance, you have to redress it. On the same token, if someone seeks erasure of their personal data, you need to erase it. And if you have to erase it, you need to prove that you erased it and you didn't have a little bit of data lying in some archival material. I'm suggesting to clients to do a data mapping exercise to make sure that you know what kind of personal data you're collecting. Are you collecting data of children? Are you collecting data of people with disabilities? Because people with disabilities is a category of people who have been put very similar to children. You need verifiable parental consent. So it's a good idea to at least check what you are collecting, what personal data you're collecting, because then you can know the areas where you may have to get a compliance mechanisms uh, system in place. Um, it is a good idea to have an SOP for data breaches. What would you do? How will you inform? How do you check? While an audit may not be required for everyone other than significant data fiduciaries, it's a good idea to go through the whole process of auditing your systems. If you have a, a data processing agreement with an Indian entity or in India, if two entities, a data fiduciary and data processor have an agreement, uh, many times they don't, but I'm telling clients to check 
Are you using a data processor? And if so, then do you have a, a DPA? Uh, if you have a data processing agreement, then um, it's, it's very important to check that because there are some obligations that you can pass on to the data processor or you require compliance so that the data fiduciary is not non-compliant. So it's, that's something that can be checked and verified. Um, and finally, uh, we have the ability of a data uh, principal to seek the notice that they get for collection of personal data and the consent they give and also probably the privacy policies to seek that particular document in their language. India has 22 national languages and any data uh, principal can ask for the notice in their language and when they do that you have to provide it you, you don't have to have everything ready but you know when there's a request you have to provide it so it's a good idea to translate all these data principal facing documents being the privacy policy the notice for collecting personal data and the consent form or the consent uh, uh, text into some of the main languages of uh, national languages of India. And if you don't do that, then at least have translators ready who can translate all of these documents into the language uh, of the data principle. So these are some things that the um, clients who either are in India and you know, processing data, personal data in India, or are overseas and providing goods and services to India or Indians, and in that process, collecting personal data. You would need to comply with the laws because the DPDP Act also has an extra territorial reach if you are uh, providing goods and services in India. So these are some things that you can do now. Thank you very much. So it sounds like there's a lot to do. Uh, but hopefully a little bit of time left to do it in the next few months uh, slash years. So thank you very much. That was a very insightful overview. Very grateful for you for coming in. Thanks, Sajid. Not a problem any time. And I hope as the law evolves, we can have more po podcasts and we can talk more in detail. And um, uh, it's, it's very likely that a lot of things we discussed today will look very different in due course. That was so interesting. Thank you, Rowan and Sajay. Now, Edward, I'm going to ask you the question we normally do at the end of this show. What's the strangest, most interesting, or even the best thing that you've heard about in privacy in the last few weeks? Thanks, Fran. Uh, so in the past couple of weeks, I've been on a family holiday in California. Uh, and one of the interesting things I saw out there, which was certainly new to me and not something that I've seen done, certainly in the UK uh, or Europe, is that when you would walk into a number of shops, they would have at the doorway a QR code and a sign telling you how to exercise your California privacy rights. Uh, it, like I said, it's something that, that I haven't seen in the UK, but quite a cool feature. And I wonder whether that kind of transparency is something that uh, we may see coming across our side of the pond. That's very interesting. I haven't seen anything like that on the East Coast either. And it will be interesting to see whether it spreads this way. 
One thing that I have seen recently is the White House dropped President Biden's new executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy artificial intelligence, something that has been long anticipated. We've all been watching for. The executive order does many, many things. Among other things, it requires developers of the most powerful AI systems do regular safety testing and share that. It also includes protections, including things like watermarking to help protect against AI-enabled fraud and deepfakes, which I thought was an interesting addition. And it even proposed to establish an advanced cybersecurity program to develop AI tools to find and fix vulnerabilities in critical software. So the executive order is very broad. It covers a lot of ground from making sure that AI is safe to using AI to help improve safety and cybersecurity. Thanks, Fran. Uh, The White House statement also comes hot on the heels of the G7 leaders agreement on an AI code of conduct for companies. So this is certainly a topic that uh, we'll be featuring on the podcast again, probably sooner rather than later. For now, that's it for another episode. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to this episode of The Day to Day from Ropes and Gray. And thank you, Sajay, for joining us. If you would like to join us for an episode or you know somebody who we need to have on the show, please reach out to Fran or me by email or we're both on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and you can listen to the series wherever you regularly listen to your podcasts, including on Apple, Google and Spotify.